It'll but that's beautiful because I never would have considered making a sandwich out of leftover ramen. <laughs> Neither would I have. So I think that's a tr- that's the best name. Yeah, well, she told me that uh, that when she was going to game conventions, that was like standard fare. <laughs> you know, for, for, for poor young gamers, you right. know, you take that, that ramen, you shove it between slices of bread. Right. Well, certainly for me, the ramen has always been a... Yeah, know. yeah. I actually didn't believe her that it was a thing at first, I have to admit. And then I was in one of the Japanese supermarkets here in L.A., and they sold ramen sandwiches. Hey, gang, it's Harold. I've been known to visit the glamorous world of RPGs. With time at a premium, I appreciate a good pre-designed adventure that reduces planning and optimizes for playtime. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with my friend Doug Sun, a talented writer who uses his skills to produce D&D and Pathfinder modules that are fantastic. He has one on Kickstarter as we speak. Thanks for listening, and if you get a chance, share the podcast with a friend. Douglas Sun was born in Los Angeles and has lived most of his life close by, leaving only to collect impressive degrees in English literature from Yale and the University of Chicago. He taught at Cal State Los Angeles for several years before leaving the cloistered life of a scholar for the cloistered life of a writer. An avid gamer since the early days of historical wargaming and role-playing games, he began writing for RPGs in the late 1990s, and his academic training melds with his experience as a gamer to enrich his work in distinctive, if not unique, ways. He contributed to Decipher's Star Trek and Lord of the Rings role-playing games, and he was a line developer of The Legend of the Five Rings RPG. His work has been nominated for an Origins Award. He currently writes location modules for both Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition and Pathfinder and publishes them through Ramen Sandwich Press. We discuss how he got involved in writing fantasy modules, his company, Ramen Sandwich Press, and what's going on in his world, places by the way. We'll start this interview with a question on how he got started playing war games and role-playing games. Well, it goes back to high school, like so much else. Um, uh, I got into gaming, if you want to go back to the very, very beginning. Uh, I started playing chess, I guess, when I was maybe five or six, when I was very young. And... Um, I enjoy chess, uh, got to be halfways decent at it. I, I played actively through high school, and I was actually uh, second board on my chess team, high school chess team. And our first board was actually uh, a legitimate USCF master-rated kid, you know, 15, 16 years old. So, um, But at some point, I'd say around junior high school, I started to uh, get a little bit... I don't want to say tired, but I I got a little bit jaded by the determinism of chess. It's the same game, um, the same board all the time, all the time. There's a a limit to the possibilities. Everything is very mechanical in a sense. Um, And I I subscribed to uh, Scientific American at the time, and I saw an ad by SPI 
they were running ads in Scientific American. I thought, oh, well, this looks interesting. They're games. They're historical, so history's interesting. Uh, so, and that's that, that was the beginning of the long journey to where we are right here. Uh, so, so you were a high, you were in high school and you, and you subscribed? I was, I was in junior high. Oh, okay. Sorry. Junior high. Yeah. Junior high and you subscribed to Scientific American. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Precocious, nerdy kid. What can yeah, I say? Yeah. No, um, well, that's, that's a new level of precociousness. <laughs> well, right? Well, yeah. Well, Scientific American was for, it was, it was, it was, it was a, a science magazine for, for lay people. You yes, know, uh, and I can't yes, honestly say that I understood everything that I read in it, but it was interesting right, to me. But it was deep. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't mind diving into the deep waters, and and I'm perfectly happy to accept that I I won't understand everything the first time around, but I'll keep at it. I, I mean, that. that's actually a good way to approach a lot of game rules when you think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Know, don't give up. Keep going. Absolutely. Um, so so what did you do SPI wise? Well, my first, uh, my first game, I actually got my first copy of Strategy and Tactics before uh, I got the, the intro offer of, of Napoleon at Waterloo. That was back when they were still using Napoleon at Waterloo as their intro game. Uh, my first uh, uh, SPI game was The Punic Wars. I think it was S&T issue 54. Um, and I just thought, oh, this is fascinating. It's history. It's deep into history. Uh, the games, you know, they offer you this... this a certain set of, of challenges, of, of mental challenges that you've got to figure out. And this is really cool. This is really interesting. So I, I got into gaming as a hobby that way through, through historical wargaming. Um, and then when I got into high school, uh, one of the first friends that I made at my new high school, actually, just by coincidence, uh, he and his brother were, were getting into Dungeons and Dragons. They said, oh, well, you're interested in games. Well, why don't you hang out with me and my brother, and uh, we'll try this thing out called Dungeons and Dragons. This is around the time that AD&D was new. And so I did it, and uh, I got hooked into that as well. Um, because it was a game, but it was a different kind of game. It was, um, it was more open-ended, which was kind of fascinating. Not better than... than, than most board games, historical war games, but it was a different kind of experience. It was immersive in that way. And um, my friend's brother, who was the GM, being the older brother, he always ran the game. <laughs> uh, he didn't just, he, he, he's, he remains to this day an adventurous spirit in the sense of wanting to explore a lot of different options for what you can do with this rule set. So he, it, it, we didn't play just pure D&D. He brought in Arduin Grimoire. Um, for, for a long time, we used this, this D100 uh, combat system uh, that was developed by some small publisher based in San Diego that's long disappeared. I forget their name. I forget the name of the system. But I remember Brigandine Armor. That is just, what the hell is it? But I knew that it worked well under that system for my elf fighter. And I just, you know, um, true of so, so many things for me in Dungeons and Dragons. I just don't know. I don't know what it is, but I like it. Yes. You know? That's an excellent way to approach RPGs. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's how I got started in D and D through high school friends, like with so many other people. Yeah. And um, what did your what did your parents think about what you were doing with not only Dungeons and Dragons but SPI? Good question. Good question. Um, my parents did not have any prejudices or preconceptions about it, 
which was good uh, because it meant that they, in a certain way, they were just too, I don't want to say perplexed, but bemused maybe to know what was going on. And they figured as long as he's making friends and as long as he's staying out of trouble, we're okay with it, you know. Um, I think they sensed that there was something intellectual and academic about it, which made them comfortable. So, yeah. And did you play war games and Dungeons and Dragons with the same people, or were they different groups? Slightly different. You know, I, I didn't really know that many historical war gamers in, in high school. Um, we had a club actually that did uh, that was interested in history and historical simulation, but they tend to housebrew their own rules. Uh, they weren't they weren't involved in the whole SPI versus Avalon Hill debate. They were doing their own thing, and. Uh, I think that in a later day and age, they might have been full-fledged miniatures gamers instead. Um, so I solitaired a lot of a lot of uh, the historical war game stuff, and it was kind of my own thing. Uh, although uh, my D and D buddies, you know, occasionally they could be talked into it. Occasionally they could. Um, um, in college, I actually had friends who who uh, were perfectly happy to play Kingmaker, uh, but that was about the extent of it. Um, and no role playing in college. There were kids who 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 played uh, role playing games. Gaming, I think, is much more of a thing now uh, in in the Ivy League. I get that impression than than it was back then. It really was, you know, the nerdy kids. And uh, I am kind of embarrassed to admit now, and it just sounds very weird given where I am. But when I went off to college, it, it, it felt like another phase in my life, and I was kind of branching out into different things, and some of the things I did in high school I thought I, I might leave behind. Um, with had that naive and foolish belief. Uh, but when I came back um, to Los Angeles to teach at Cal State Los Angeles after graduate school, I wound up hooking up with a lot of my high school friends who had never left, and my high school gaming buddies who uh, I played D&D with they were now into, they were still gaming with each other, but they were now into Battletech and eventually Magic the Gathering. And I just kind of fell in with them again and got back into gaming that way. You, you graduate. Mm -hmm. You end up with a PhD mm -hmm. in? English. Was there, a, was there a history component in literature or something else that was historically oriented in your, your studies? Not formally, although if you... If you read between the lines, you'll notice that there are a lot of English professors who uh, like to work in other stuff, whether out of context or because at some point they get bored with literature. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, to study English lit for 10 years like I did without uh, working in history or art history, uh, other disciplines. Um, and uh, I, uh, as part of a, a background for, for my doctoral thesis, I wound up uh, spending a lot of time with um, uh, a scholar at the University of Chicago named J. Paul Hunter, who wrote a book about the, the early history of the novel. And so I got, from him, I got a very strong perspective on uh, literary history, just how the whole thing of a different time in history impacts, should impact how you view literature, how you understand literature. So, and I don't know whether uh, 
whether uh, Dr. Hunter started something with me or whether something resonated with me about his work, that it's just natural that you should understand literature in the historical context in which it emerged. And that means understanding the past, understanding where people were then and its relationship to where you are now. Um, but I think it, it, it really helped me um, understand literature and, uh, and certainly it fed into my general interest in history. So you got back into role-playing then? Yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting process. Um, I, and actually, well, interesting in the sense of curious and serendipitous and perhaps just quite illogical and part of the random course that our lives <laughs> often follow. How the heck did this happen? Well, it just happened. Um, one of my best friends from high school, who is not a gamer, married a wonderful woman uh, from Pennsylvania who was also not a gamer, but one of her good friends was... Actually, two of her good friends from, from, from her old hometown in Pennsylvania were running their own game publisher at this point, and they'd moved out to Los Angeles. This is Last Unicorn Games. And, uh, and she said, oh, well, if, if you're into this stuff, I'd be happy to introduce you to them sometime. And so she did. And I got to know Owen Seiler and Christian Moore, who, who were running Last Unicorn Games, and uh, wound up uh, doing some work for them. But it was writing. I, I had some understanding of what they were doing. I, I got my break uh, working on one of the legendary of its time uh, products uh, in, in role-playing games, the Dune role-playing game. Last Unicorn had a license for Dune, uh, and um, uh, at that time they were planning uh, the, uh, the, the, the follow-ons to the core book, and I got a chance to, to write a couple of chapters of, of one of the supplements. And I just thought, this is so cool. This is fun. And the work wound up being satisfactory. And I thought, well, gee, I, I guess I could, I could kind of do this. And it was a lot of fun. Um, now, for, for your listeners who, who may not be familiar with the history of the Dune role-playing game, uh, shortly thereafter, um, Last Unicorn uh, was acquired by Wizards of the Coast. And Wizards decided that they just were not interested in, in the Dune role-playing game. So they published the core rulebook, which was already done. But they decided, well, we're just not going to deal with the rest of it. So the supplements that I worked on were never published. No, no. Yeah. Uh, I got paid for the work, but they were never published. So it was an, it was an interesting introduction in, into, the, into the business of, of, of game publishing. Uh, at about the same time... Um, I also was able to hook on with Alderac Entertainment Group uh, at a time when they were breaking into publishing uh, material for Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition under the new newfangled open gaming license, which Wizards had just unleashed upon the world. And so I, I made some connections there, did some work there, worked on a lot of their, uh, their, uh, their, their, their third-party D&D stuff for a while. In the meantime, uh, the my friends from Last Unicorn, then with Watsi, uh, they uh, they had kind of they had left Watsi and uh, convinced uh, Decipher, another name from the past, 
to uh, start a role-playing game division. And Decipher at that time had the license to, uh, to Star Trek. And so there's a natural fit there because Last Unicorn Games had also done a Star Trek role-playing game. And, of course, Decipher also acquired the license to uh, Lord of the Rings when Peter Jackson unleashed his movies upon the world. And so I, again, hooked up with them when they came back to Los Angeles and said, hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, what's up with uh, this, uh, with your Trek RPG and your uh, Lord of the Rings RPG? And so when there were, there were openings to, to, to work on those product lines as, as a freelancer, they brought me in and did some stuff, had a great time working on those product lines. Um, Decipher eventually closed its role-playing game division. And um, after that, I hooked back on with Alderac Entertainment Group, which was still doing third-party D&D stuff. I uh, was offered the chance to become the co-developer and co-writer of a large uh, setting book that they wanted to do called The World's Largest City. It was supposed to be a, a companion to their World's Largest Dungeon book, which had been quite successful for them. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was that was that was a really neat experience. It was the most responsibility I, I'd ever had because I was actually half in charge of the book, and wound up being in full charge of the book by the time that the process was done. And so it was great to be a developer, have my first gig as a developer. And after that was done, um, uh, there was there opened up a spot on the Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game staff. Uh, Rich Wolf, who uh, had been in charge of the role-playing game for some years, after the third edition core rulebook was finished, he left, and I was brought in to kind of take his place and, and, and oversee uh, the role-playing game. And that was the experience of a lifetime, to work with a wonderful franchise like L5R, uh, that, that, that wonderful fanatical fan base that they had, <laughs> and, and to work with that, that rich, powerful uh, just all-encompassing, all-absorbing world was 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 just it was the experience of a lifetime. Um, uh, but when they wanted to do the fourth edition of the game, uh, they decided that some new blood was 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 uh, was needed, and uh, and so I stepped away and and uh, and, and left that product line. Uh, Kind of well, we're kind of getting to where I am now, I guess, which is where you probably want to go anyway. We'll get there um, eventually. Yeah, yeah eventually. Uh, well, we're almost there actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this would have been about uh, 2011, 2012, and I kind of kicked around uh, trying to break into uh, mobile games. After that, uh, associated myself and worked on a bunch of products that never really got off the ground. The interesting thing about the mobile game space is that we were we were just kind of um, a little bit too late to be early to be to have the benefit of being pioneers. At that point, the space was already beginning to flood with with developers, uh, and so it was very hard to break in. We uh, we did do a wonderful little project that never quite that never it was never really fated to work, but it was, it was a neat little project. We we got some seed money to uh, produce a um, what was supposed to be. A, an animated adaptation of a novel by Kevin J. Anderson, the best-selling science fiction writer, called Veiled Alliances. And our idea was that we would make these 10-minute episodes 
using the Unity engine, a 3D game engine, and maybe add some interactive features to it after the fact if we could if we could fund the whole thing. And there would be 10-minute episodes that you could view on your mobile device, you know, something that you could watch during your coffee break or whatnot. And we actually made a pilot. We, we made a 10-minute pilot episode, which I wrote, uh, wrote, heard on the voice recording. Uh, it, it, it turned out quite well. I, I'm actually quite pleased with it. But it never really took off. Uh, it became clear that there's really no business case to be made for sinking money into it. And so we never... We never finished it. And so at that By point... By the way, the, hmm? the fact that a business case doesn't exist for doing something has, has not stopped a lot of stuff. It yes. Stop. So, yes. So why be sticklers, right? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we didn't really want to go there. We, we uh, <laughs> right. at least had that much sense. We, I, uh, but anyway. Good for you. Uh, yeah. Um, but it was a great experience. Uh, I, I think the I think it may still be in the iTunes Store, Veiled Alliances. Uh, uh, but it was a lot of fun working with voice actors and writing the script and and and, and that. But I, I kind of got I was at loose ends again, and I was kind of getting the um, the 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 itch to, to start writing for role playing games again. God help me! Uh, <laughs> I seriously mean, God help me. Um, and about that time, I got together with one of my former bosses in role-playing game publishing. And, of course, the landscape had changed a great deal since I, I had left Legend of the Five Rings. Um, Kickstarter was a thing, a real thing at that point. And this transition that had been in the, in the works really ever since I broke into the industry was coming to fruition where um, the the, the future really belonged to uh, authors who had a name, who, who were their own brand, a strong personality, who were recognized by fans, uh, would essentially sell their own work instead of going through publishers. Um, and so I was talking, like I said, with, with one of my ex-bosses, and I told him I was thinking of getting back into the game. And he said to me, this is an exact quote, he said to me, well, you know, Doug, you're a good enough writer so that there's no reason why you couldn't get your own Kickstarter following if that's what you want. And I thought, well, I can imagine worse things. It sounds pretty good to me. It sounds better than a punch in the stomach. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll do that. Uh, I thought about it. Um, and at that point, I already had the idea for Places by the Way in my head. I already had the idea of writing short mini-modules tied to a particular location and doing a series of them so that you would eventually cover a wide variety of situations, environments, and people could would eventually have a catalog. And if you wanted to plug a certain situation, a certain environment into your existing campaign, then you would just pick one of my modules up and, and stick it in, make it work and run it, and, and give your, your, your players a nice little break from their main storyline. Interesting. Yeah. So, so around uh, in early 2016, we, we went live with our first Kickstarter campaign for The Village of Dark Harrow. 
and uh, it's so you said we. Let's we. talk about the oh the we. Means. Well, I, I tend to use we um, because I I get a great deal of help from my longtime friend and and sometime co-conspirator Kimberly Unger, who handles layout and some of the art for us, and uh, and so I, I use we in a way to give what I do a, a more formal corporate identity and to make it seem like less of a one-man show. Um, well, and, so, so, you know, so tell us about Kimberly. Oh, well, Kim, uh, I met her um, years and years ago when uh, she was living in Pasadena, actually. Uh, her, her then boyfriend, now husband, was a, was a graduate student at Caltech at the time, and we met through mutual friends and became good friends. She um, uh, has a background in English lit, but, but she was also a student at the Art Center College of Design at the time, and she wanted to break into the computer game industry, and that's something I kind of had in mind as well to, as a writer, her as an artist. And uh, we, we just uh, kept in touch over the years, uh, worked together on some, some, some projects, most of which never quite off the, got off the ground, but uh, came to respect each other's ability and intelligence and ability to work together as, as, as a team and, uh, and became good friends. And, and I just feel very comfortable working with her on, on a wide variety of projects. And so when I started talking to her about, um, about places by the way and just saying, well, this is what I want to do, she said, oh, I can handle layout for you. So, um, so we, we were still working together. Still friends, yeah, yeah. Um, it's 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 a wonderful relationship that we have, and and uh, it's it's so rare in a lot of ways that you wind up being friends at that level with someone you work with for such a long period of time. Kickstarter number one places, by the way, right? Uh, that was very successful. Um, uh, the Village of Dark Hero was the module. Um, Tell uh, us a little bit about the. The contents. What 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 is the village, and how does it fit into the places? By the way, what is what does places by the way mean? Right. Well, um, the the, the uh, one of the the influences for places by the way, uh, the, the idea in a lot of ways comes from work that I did very early for Alderac Entertainment Group. Uh, they published uh, basically a bunch of pamphlet-sized mini adventures that they sold for three bucks. Well, two fifty, and then they raised to three. Uh, uh, inflation, yeah, yeah. And uh, I worked on a couple of those, did a couple of those, and so I've always felt that you could cram an adventure into a small space like that. Uh, so I thought that, and, and I knew that that it was something that I could do quickly, turn around quickly. Because where a lot of uh, uh, role-playing game projects on Kickstarter come to grief is the amount of time that it takes to do an entire book, entire setting book, much less a core rule system. You know, these guys who want to do their, their own rule systems, and you know, they say, well, support me on Kickstarter. This is going to be the best rule system ever. And they find that development takes a long time, and writing and editing and collecting the art for an entire book-length project takes a long time. But I knew I could I could take something quick, turn it around with Kimberly's help, and uh, and you know not get into that kind of trouble. 
and furthermore build up a body of work fairly quickly that would then say to the world, hey, Doug Sun's back, you know, or here he is in case you didn't know who he was before, <laughs> which is much, much, much more likely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so the idea was to develop this library of resources that, that DMs could call on if they just want a, 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 a side quest type of thing for their campaign. You know, you've got your main storyline and your characters are on their way to defeat the Lich or to, to find the dragon's treasure. But you're probably going to take a break at some point. You know, uh, you don't want to keep up the main storyline because it's just too high a pitch of intensity. Or you just want to take a little break and, and do something different. Uh, and so what I want to do is to provide this, this set of, of tools to give you, so that you can take this, this, this little mosaic tile, not the whole mosaic, but a tile. It'll be a very pretty tile. It'll be a glittering tile, but you stick it into that larger mosaic. Not the whole thing, but although I, I understand that a lot of people have run, including you, I think, have run, have run my modules as standalones, which is also perfectly fine. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm not trying to be your whole thing, but I am trying to give you something that will make your whole thing that much cooler. It can be that, right? Yeah. And, uh, and as you said, you can run it separately. Yeah. You can use it to create a universe yeah. uh, that's useful. And, uh, and that's where I use it is mm -hmm. with my nephews, mm -hmm. right? I, I, right. I take it and we lay it out and we go through it and I, and they're in Texas and I'm in San Diego and mm -hmm. I don't see them that often. So we don't have the time or proximity for a massive campaign, but these bites are perfect. Mm -hmm. But I can also see your point, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're doing something and you can, you can divert, digress into something else. Now, originally Dungeons and Dragons 5e. Yes, yes. Originally, D&D uh, &D 5e. Um, uh, so, yeah, Village of Dark Harrow, I, I wrote for D&D &D 5e. Uh, all the time, I had my eye on Pathfinder, but I didn't want to get too ambitious at the start. Uh, this, this really, these last 10 years really have been a very remarkable history and a remarkable period in, in the history of role-playing games because you have had two rule systems, two Different, though slightly overlapping fan bases, really. I guess there's slight overlap. Uh, two different rule systems that are able to sustain themselves, even though they're really in the same genre. Uh, I am pleasantly surprised that Pathfinder is still around, to be honest. Um, I'm glad they're making a go of it. Um, so I always had it, had it in my mind to do versions of the modules that would be uh, native to Pathfinder, and to have them coexist with, the, to have that series coexist with Places by the Way. And I called it Found by the Way as a pun on Pathfinder. So each of the, the Found by the Way modules is called Path 2, wherever it is. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I was blindsided a little bit uh, because... Two weeks after I launched a Kickstarter campaign to support Found by the Way, Paizo announced Pathfinder Second Edition. Ugh, that's rotten timing. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, luck. timing in life is everything. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 
that. But but you fixed it, right? I fixed it. Yes, I think I fixed it. I yes. hope I fixed it. It's just a you lot went more beyond. Work. You went beyond fixing it. <laughs> I, I think, right? I mean, you basically agreed to reconcile. <laughs> yes. To 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 both both versions of Pathfinder. Yes, I did what I felt I had to do to establish myself with that fan base. So I shouldn't complain about it. Uh, it is it is rotten luck in terms of timing. Yes, I at the time I knew that uh, that that Paizo was publishing the playtest version of the rules, not the final second edition rules, but the playtest version. And as a gesture, just as a gesture of good faith, which I felt I had to make for my own sake, um, um, I said, well, look, I'll start including conversion notes so that if you are interested in the 2E playtest rules, which are only going to be good for a year, but, you know, if you're interested, you're interested, I'll, I'll create uh, conversion notes, make them available for free for the modules that are already out by the time the rules are, are published, um, and start including them as part of the standard package going forward so yeah yeah i did that and now uh i've had some requests from pathfinder fans who say yeah i'm not gonna go to 2e i'm sticking with first edition at least not right now at least not right now so we'll see yeah. how it goes um but that's but, that's what's amazing to me doug it, it's it was something you didn't have to do right and that's the beauty of this of what you do in in the application and Kickstarter, that that your goal is to to develop almost personal relationships, and so you're taking actions right that I'm observing from the outside that are just extraordinary, but it's personal to you, right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You're, you're right. You're right. Um, one of our one of our other fellow backers, or one of your fellow backers, uh, someone you may know, David Siskin. Um, um, uh, you know, David actually also, I was talking to him and he said, you know, what you do is personal. And I hadn't thought of it in that way, but you're right. Both of you guys are right. It is personal in that sense. It is retail, right. retail selling, another way of well, looking the, the, at it. You don't overanalyze it like we do. <laughs> but, but, but the only way, you know, but looking in from the outside, you see what you're doing and your mm -hmm. choices and you're saying, how is he making those choices? And the only way is because it's personal. And, and I, I only bring that up. Because if there are people that aren't buying these and backing you now, they should understand that it's we're not just backing a guy. Mm -hmm. We're backing a guy that has a personal commitment. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the way I look at it is that that personal commitment, uh, as you describe it to me, it's necessary for me to prove to all those fans out there, all those uh, those players of D&D &D and Pathfinder, who are looking at, at what I do and going, well, uh, who really is this guy? Uh, why should I take an interest in his stuff? I have something to prove to all of them, to all of you. Um, and this is how I, this is the best way I know to do it. Um, and I haven't heard complaint one from you. I, so, so when I bring that up, I'm not bringing it up to say you complained to me and this is what I heard. Right. I, I just heard you lay it out and I let you laid out the fix and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it's <laughs> extraordinary what you're doing. But, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just impressed. So oh, that's why you. I, that's why I rave about it. Thank you. I, I'd, I'd like to take us through what's going on in these mini adventures. 
Or what, 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 what would you encounter? Oh, right. Maybe talk me through one or two of them. Okay. Well, the, the, the basic structure that, that I settled on is that uh, there are multiple levels to each module, even though they're short. So there are different ways that you can use the material. One is your party comes into this village, this nowhere apparently, uh, apparently uh, unexceptional little village, and they visit the various locations. They go to the store because they need food. Um, they go to the blacksmith because they need to polish up a sword. They're looking for cool new weapons. Um, uh, and so they stop at location one, location two, location three. They meet NPCs. They meet people who can help them. And if all they want is to take a quick break and to find some cool items and to maybe do a few side quests like, you know, um, uh, in, the village of, uh, in the village of Dark Harrow, um, you could go out, you could hear that uh, one of the farmers out in, you know, just north of town um, has a problem with ankhegs popping up into the field and driving him crazy and, of course, making it very hazardous to work his, to work his farm. So, you know, the, 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 the head man of the town will say, well, go out to that farm, you help him out. That, that would really be, be cool for us. That would help us out. And being heroes, you're probably going to do it, right? So you go out and you kill the ankhegs and, and the farmer gives you a small reward. If that's all you want and then you move on, that's fine. But if you want to stick around and you kind of listen to what's going on in town, you'll find out in the village of Dark Harrow uh, that uh, there may be a pattern to some of the stuff that's happening around town. And you may also notice that there's something a little odd about the old woman who helps the herb gatherer who makes these really cool herbal cures for, po for poisons and diseases and things. And if you wander around a little bit, you may catch a glimpse of her and realize that she's actually an angel. And if you talk to her, you know, she may fess up to what she's doing here and why she's here. And you'll find out that she's there to, as a servant of her goddess, the goddess of farming, which is also the goddess of the village. Although really, since you, know, you, can, you can work in any deity you want that makes sense. It doesn't have to be the goddess of farming, but that's kind of what I picked. And uh, her mission in this village is to keep watch over the villagers, to protect them as a servant of her goddess. But she's not supposed to make it obvious who she is, so she uses her polymorph ability to disguise herself as an old woman. Uh, and you may, also, you, you may also find out that um, living in the forest just beyond the edge of the village, is a fallen angel, someone who preceded her in this role, but who became sort of disgusted and disenchanted by these puny humans who don't appreciate the fact that their goddess is watching over him, and he basically kind of, he turns evil. That's what fallen angels are, right? So um, he runs off into the forest, and he makes common cause with, uh, actually I'm kind of confusing different versions of, of the module here, but, but into the wilderness. He runs off into the wilderness and he makes common cause with an evil druid who 
uh, in turn makes common cause with these evil humanoids who live in the wilderness, you know, goblins and, 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 and ogres and such like, who don't like the fact that this farming village is here because they're used to going through this area to raid fertile lands, you know, farther away. So he says, oh, there's a fallen angel here. He's a powerful ally. He can help me wipe out the villagers and kill everyone and, and burn the village to the ground, and then we'll have free reign again. So if you stick around, around long enough, you'll have a chance to get caught up in this conflict and take sides. Well, you probably you're going to help the angel defend, defend the village speak against... Speak for yourself. Yeah, speak for yourself, but you never know. I mean, right. there, are op- there are options. Right. There are options. <laughs> um. Um, but that's a great that's a great story that's yeah. woven woven across, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not just the esoteric. Yeah. And you don't have to do it, but you can. Yes. It adds to the experience. And then of course there's this final confrontation when the evil druid launches his, his attack on the village. Right. Um, so uh, another example, I, I uh, can I should I give you a preview of the one that I'm working on yes, now? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the one that I that that I'm working on now, uh, I'm running a Kickstarter to support the eighth module in the series, which it's it's definitely the best tagline that I've come up with yet. I'm describing it as um, as uh, the Arabian Nights meets a fistful of dollars. <laughs> so it's this desert oasis, and it's a popular way station for caravans, anybody who's going through this horrible desert. Because not only is there fresh water here, but one of the springs uh, has water that is said to have magic properties. What it really is, is a portal to the elemental plane of water. And there are these water elementals that are just kind of at the bottom of the well. And the family that operated uh, the spring for generations, you know, made money off of it, took care of it, sold the water. Uh, they used a ring of elemental command to keep these elementals under control. They fish out the water and the, the these elemental creatures don't bother them. But the last heir to the family died. And so the 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 struggle over who inherits the spring who inherits the most valuable piece of land in town becomes this gang war between the the family's employees their retainers their followers they basically split into two gangs and so you have the situation like in a fistful full of dollars where the hero walks into this town there are two gangs fighting each other and they both want him on their side uh, fans of uh, of, uh, of Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, who know that that Japanese movie series will recognize the, the storyline instantly. Also, um, but it's also the Arabian Nights. So there's a jinn and there's an afrit. Uh, and uh, what I'm working in is not only can you stick around this 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 oasis. Uh, well, you can, if you want to, you could just buy some, some dates that have been fertilized with enchanted water. You can buy some enchanted water and then just move on to your next destination. Or you can, if you stick around long enough, one of the gangs will try to recruit you. Then another of the gang will, gangs will try to recruit you. And in the meantime, there's also, because it's the Arabian Nights, there's a resident jinn who, you know, kind of disguises himself, but he plays tricks on the townspeople, but he, he's generally their friend. Uh, but there's also a gate to the elemental plane of fire in the cooking pit of the local inn. 
and there's an afrit that, that, that pops up through it. And the jinn and the afrit are, are enemies. Um, so, but the afrit, uh, conveniently enough, he finds that when this portal to the, to the plane of fire closes behind him, he can't access his most dangerous powers. So he wants to enslave everybody in the village and bring them back to the city of brass, but he can't unless that portal opens back up again. So in the meantime, he's here and he's kind of frenemies with the, with the djinn and they get together and play chess and, you know, maybe arm wrestle, but you know, he can't really do anything. So um, there are actually going to be two climaxes. One is, uh, the, the water elementals at the bottom of the spring realize that, hey, there's no humans to control us anymore. And so they're going to assert the fact that they're really in charge. Uh, and so your party has to figure out what do you want to do at that point. You know, first of all, have you taken sides with one gang or the other? But what are you going to do when the elementals start jumping out of the well and start causing havoc? The, the, uh, there's, there's going to be this additional layer with the djinn and the Afrit. And wouldn't you know it, suddenly that portal to the plane of fire opens up and the Afrit can access his powers again. And so now the, he's going to square off against the Jinn, who says, no, 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 I'm, uh, you know, we were frenemies, but now you're my actual enemy. Now that you're actually trying to <laughs> enslave people and take them to the city of brass. So the party at that point will have the option of throwing in with the Afrit or throwing in with the Jinn. Are you going to be with the evil elemental or the good elemental? Interesting. And there will be, I will, I will describe outcomes depending on, on the choices that the party makes. Right. Love so. it. Love it. This is, uh, this is terrific. So on Kickstarter, if I just wanted the D&D 5e mm -hmm. version of this, mm -hmm. PDF only, mm -hmm. uh, I could become a backer for? For $6. $6. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. It's a bargain, right? And yeah. and so more if you want the hard copy. If you wanted yes. the hard copy signed by the uh, author, yes, uh, it, it would be it would be twenty, including domestic shipping. Right. Uh, but I do I do sign uh, each print copy to the right. backer, um, and uh, I I also try to point out about uh, the Kickstarter rewards is that on Kickstarter I offer backers a unique version. Of, of each module. There's going to be a little extra content that won't be in it when I sell over uh, Amazon or, or drive through right. RPG. Right. And, and since I'm terribly backed up <laughs> on, on getting this podcast out, obviously this Kickstarter starter will be completed. Yeah. So, so, so the, if somebody wanted to get access uh, to your modules, mm -hmm. uh, all of the modules that you've done so far, mm -hmm. they can go to, they can go to, uh, if they want print copies, they can go to Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, we do a, we do print on demand through Ingram Spark. Uh, so Ingram obviously has tremendous pull with booksellers all over the world, and so I've seen uh, our modules listed on on not just on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but Books a Million, uh, bookselling websites in. I believe the Netherlands, in Italy, all over the world, you can buy PDFs through uh, drive-through RPG. And we also, I, I should mention this, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if I've mentioned this to you, but uh, we also, I also create a version of each module 
that is tailored to the Forgotten Realms. So D&D fans who are fans of the Forgotten Realms and like to play in, in that setting, uh, you can also find that version of each module through Dungeon Master's Guild. Oh, terrific. You, the, the company that you operate under mm-hmm. for this purpose mm-hmm. is called Ramen Sandwich. Yes. So I'm going to have to ask you on the recording to explain the ramen sandwich <laughs> reference. Well, ramen sandwich, this goes back to when, when my friend Kimberly and I were working on mobile games. Uh, we had a lot of other ideas in mind for things that we could do. And she came up with a, a brand that we could use to shove all the miscellaneous stuff that we had thought about. And she called it ramen sandwich because uh, she said, well, it's a ramen sandwich. It's it's something you do with leftover ramen. So that, that's what it is. You but that's beautiful because I never would have considered making a sandwich out of leftover ramen. <laughs> Neither would I have. So I think that's a tr- that's the best name. Yeah, well, she told me that uh, that when she was going to game conventions, that was like standard fare. <laughs> you know, for, for, for poor young gamers, you right. know, you take that, that ramen, you shove it between slices of bread. Right. Well, certainly for me, the ramen has always been a... Yeah, know. yeah. I actually didn't believe her that it was a thing at first, I have to admit. And then I was in one of the Japanese supermarkets here in L.A., and they sold ramen sandwiches. Sandwich. That's yeah. great. So Very good. Uh, I, I had uh, someone on the, um, the, the Paizo message board say to me uh, that this, is, this was the coolest name for a game company that he had ever seen. Well, it really is. <laughs> So, so ramen sandwich is the place to find mm-hmm. yes. your, your stuff. Yes. And places, by the way, mm-hmm. is the overarching. Yes, it's the name of, of this particular product line. Right. Uh, and found, by the way, of course, is the separate product line for Pathfinder. Pathfinder, terrific. Yeah. Now, the other thing you do, and, and, and I'll, I'll stop bothering you, but the, <laughs> the other interesting thing you do is you have a T-shirt yeah. uh, line mm-hmm. that, that, that I own at least two of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we... Uh, we we uh, we ramen sandwich covers ramen sandwich press, which is our our book publishing stuff, our our book and game publishing stuff, and ramen sandwich teas. We've developed uh, actually several different different uh, lines of uh, novelty apparel, mostly t-shirts, and uh, the the ones that you, that 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 you own, um, the the ones that we started with, uh, we call uh, we call beards and generals. Uh, and I'll tell you the idea, how we got the idea. I don't know if I've told you the story before, but I'll, I'll tell it for your listeners. Um, I was at, I was in the bar of Bally's Hotel in Las Vegas with a friend of mine who is part of the role-playing game industry, but he's also a big history buff. And we were just having one of those conversations that you have with your friends in a bar. You're just talking about shows, about stuff. And out of nowhere, he says to me, you know who would make a great t-shirt? And I said, what would make a great T-shirt? And he said, you know those aircraft recognition silhouettes from World War II? And I said, yeah. He said, Civil War generals and their beards. And we both had a laugh over this. And it should have been one of those things where it's a good (laughs) idea, but you just forget all about it afterwards, right? But, But Lord help me, I decided that I was not going to let it go. So I went home and again, talking to Kimberly about, about this. And she said, Oh yeah, if you give me some, some photographs, some, some images, I can do the, the outlines for you. No, yeah, no problem. So I went ahead and did it. 
Yeah. And, and now we, uh, we've actually expanded that out to um, a separate, a separate uh, product line that I call a revolutionary hair, which has uh, uh, hair recognition silhouettes of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, John and Abigail Adams, and of course, that star of the Broadway stage, Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> of course. You can't leave him out. I love it. I love it. Doug, we talk, talked a little bit about walking through a list of the five games that influence what you're doing now, right. or game-oriented products. So right. Why don't, you, let, why don't you walk through those? Okay. Well, uh, going back to, to when I started uh, playing D&D, &D, of course there's D&D &D or AD&D, &D, but there was also what is probably the very first science fiction role-playing game ever, Metamorphosis Alpha by James Ward. And from that... Uh, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with Metamorphosis Alpha, it was set in this colony ship that had gone into deep space and things had gone horribly awry because it had gotten irradiated and, and, and just the whole thing had gone higgledy-piggledy. And um, so the ship consisted of various levels, the biggest of which were individual habitats that were like 25 miles long and 10 miles wide, but there were also levels that were the, the operational guts of the ship. So you had the setting with these amazingly different levels of reality. And that got me to think in terms of the big picture with role-playing games, not just what does your character do now, but how do they fit into a much larger whole, a much larger world, a much larger universe? Because in Metamorphosis Alpha, I mean, you could start out as a character just from ground zero. You don't know anything about the world you're in. You think you're, you grew up in this forest or this, this rolling farmland, but you get one of those cards that allow you to access lifts and suddenly, you know, you're, you're in the engine room or, or the, 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 the storage compartment of the ship or the command center. And how does that, that, you know, how does that blow your mind? So questions like that have always, uh, have always been fascinating to me about role-playing games. So that's one. Uh, going chronologically forward, probably I would say the Vault of the Drow, the uh, the, the the module uh, for AD and D. Uh, that got me to think in terms of place, because you're in Menzo. Jeez, uh, I've never even known how to pronounce the city of the Drow. <laughs> um, but you're in this this underground city, and there isn't this set storyline that you have to follow. You're really left to explore it. And, of course, you can do all those, those wild things that, that, that you can do, like, you know, raid the merchant houses of the drow and kill everybody inside and take all their ill-gotten loot. Um, but it's really left to you how you, you go through that. So, obviously, I'm writing location modules now that can be processed in a nonlinear way if you want. Right. And that, that's kind of where that goes back to. Uh, going forward, uh, I would probably list a couple of uh, computer video game RPGs. Uh, one being Fallout, the original Fallout, which to me was the first CRPG that I experienced that had really good voice talent, where they really went in with the production values, not just, you know, the programming, uh, and even not just the art, but they really tried to create this huge, immersive, engaging experience. 
And when I, in addition to that, when I describe the, the, the inspiration for, one of the inspirations for Places by the Way being side quests in CRPGs, the example that I always go to is, uh, is Tandy from, um, from, uh, from Fallout. Uh, the girl in, in that village, I, I believe it was called Sandy Shoals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, when you first see her, she asks you to find her cow. Uh, voiced by Cree Summer, this wonderful voice, voice actress, best known, I guess, as, as Susie in Rugrats. And um, then when you come back to the village and see her again, she has this wonderful, sort of wistful, emotional uh, speech that she gives you about wishing she could see the outside world but she's stuck in this little village and you just, you just, you just want to give her a consoling hug. You know, <laughs> it made me forget all about the larger quest, you know, finding that damn water filter. And I, I just, I just wanted to give Tandy a hug and say, let, let, let's, you know, let me show you a little bit at yeah. least, you know? So that's kind of what I want to achieve with places, by the way, to, to take a little part of a larger whole and to make it so affecting that you'll remember it as right. vividly as I remember that part of Fallout. Right. Um, moving forward again, uh, there is a Japanese video game series. Again, I'm not entirely sure how the name is pronounced. Uh, it, I believe it's pronounced Disgaea. But that introduced to me, it gave me a sense that there really is a strong place if you want to put humorous content into an RPG. You don't have to play it straight all the time. You don't have to be earnest and serious. Um, you can be silly if you want, and it's still fun, and it's still compelling, and you can still just make it work. So uh, that's that's another one. Uh, for the last one, I, I, th- I guess I would have to say Legend of the Five Rings left its mark on me, and a mark that will never, ever go away. Um, uh, the world is just so incredible. Uh, if you don't know Legend of the Five Rings, if you only know it through the... Well, the card game is, is how most people know it, actually. But it's, it's very powerful, very dramatic. Uh, you know, you're John Wick, who is one of the legends of, of, of role-playing games, um, legendary creator, he, uh, he set up this world that is so full of tensions, social tensions, uh, that... It really just it, it, it it's it's hard to go wrong with it, you know. Right. There, there's so much in there that's built in that you can run with in terms of, of giving characters uh, choices that they have to make. Yeah, you know, um, and it was also uh, a valuable glimpse behind the curtain for me of how the business side works. Right, good which, and bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. So those would be my five. Good, such good stuff, Doug. <laughs> I. I uh... Uh, I, I love your work. Keep well, it up. You. Keep up the creativity and the odd, odd stuff because it's awesome. And I appreciate you coming by and taking the time to, uh, to do the podcast. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure, definitely. Thanks, Thanks. for having me on. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek or Facebook. And leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Be sure to check out Places By The Way on Kickstarter. Doug doesn't charge enough for his fantasy modules, so grab some up before I convince him to raise prices. 
Thanks to the white-haired rocker for the intro and outro music. Check him out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. And I'll close with a special thanks to Douglas Sun. And that's it for me. As always, I'm washing my hands and buying hand sanitizer from Mark Herman, and I'll be back soon. Hey, one more thing before we sign off. Well, I guess we've already signed off, so one more thing post-sign off. Doug Sun's latest module for D&D, 5e, and Pathfinder is now available on Kickstarter. It's called the Paladin Queen's Forest. It's available for six bucks as a PDF. You can't pass it up. So check it out on Kickstarter. Search for it there, or I'll have a link for it on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Gary Gygax uh, had a very strong view on women and mm -hmm. role-playing games, right? Mm -hmm. And he's, he actually said at one point, documented in a letter, that uh, women shouldn't play Dungeons & Dragons, which is ironic because in the end, there are many more women involved in Dungeons & Dragons than there are in wargaming. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and I think role-playing games as a category have actually done more to gender balance out the hobby than any other genre, maybe even more so than CCGs uh, and, and Euro games. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a kind of a sea change in role-playing games. Uh, you know, we talked about a little bit about personal history yesterday, and, and my personal history is that I also kind of phased out of gaming for a while in my life, right. at least tabletop gaming. Uh, starting in, in college and kind of lasting until uh, I finished grad school and came back to Los Angeles. Um, and during that time, what I found is that uh, Dungeons & Dragons had become less wargamey and that the hobby in general had seen this influx of games that were more narrative-oriented, more story-oriented. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of coincides, that that new emphasis, new emphasis coincides with more women feeling that there was something in, in, in role-playing games that they, that they would enjoy and glom onto. I suspect that that's the case. Interesting. Yeah. I have a friend uh, in the UK, and he has two daughters, mm -hmm. and they came to the United States. And he said, while we would drive around from tourist point to tourist point in the United States, we would play Dungeons & Dragons in the car. Oh. And we would play it with the young kids, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's not—it's less about the books and more mm -hmm. about just the, the, the fantasy. And he said it is so different playing with young girls than it is young boys, hmm. because when the young girls would encounter a creature, they would take it in oh. and care for it, uh -huh. and they end up traveling around with a zoo of, <laughs> of these animals. <laughs> And I thought that's brilliant. Right? Yeah, and and, yeah. and really re reflects a very different perspective, and what an interesting perspective when you create a group that's mixed between. Right. Yeah. Right. I yeah. Just that's was a, that's fascinating, and that, and I like that. I just you just hope that all those creatures are good aligned, so it doesn't backfire on you. Well, it's good. Yeah, it's going to be a, any zoo is going to be a problem. Right? Yeah. There are yeah. always issues in the zoo, so you have to be careful. But at the same time, if my young son encountered 
any creature, it was attacked instantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was just, that's what I do. Yeah. Attack stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, why not? Why not rescue it? Yeah. Why not take care of it? Yeah. It's, it's, it is a legitimate choice. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one that I couldn't see, but once again, right, it's that issue of gender diversity. Yeah. That's one of the, it, it just brings different perspectives. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that, that, that's true. That's true.